0: Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Carice, welcoming you to another edition of Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, an ongoing exploration about how to improve health and health care. According to the California Healthcare Foundation, about a third of Californians live in areas where there's a shortage of primary care providers, and this gap is especially apparent in what's known as the Inland Empire. That's a rural region in the southern part of the state. In addition to creating barriers to access, an overmatched workforce of physicians is at higher risk of burnout, of course. Which only worsens the problem. Well, our guest today has the challenge and opportunity of developing solutions to these thorny problems, which are common to rural areas throughout the United States. Dr. Timothy Collins is CEO of UCR Health, a clinical enterprise affiliated with the University of California Riverside School of Medicine. He came to the role in 2023 with more than 30 years of leadership experience at academic medical centers, acute care hospitals, and health systems, including spending many years in the Scripps Health System in San Diego. And Dr. Collins, thanks very much for being with us today.
1: Thanks, Michael. I'm excited to be here. So we always like to
0: start with learning more about our guests. And I understand that your interest in medicine first started when you were a lifeguard and got drawn into interest in emergency medicine. Tell us about that.
1: Yes, yes. Well, I I, have spent my entire career in healthcare and I I don't know that there's a lot of people who can say that, but it did start on the beaches in Laguna Beach. And people say, well, what happened? It's, you know, I was an EMT at that point in time, emergency medical technician trained to guard the beaches and, you know, to to rescue people in the water and, you know, surrounding injuries. And we treated them on the beach. And I always wondered, well, gosh, what happened after they left? Right. And, and that really spurred my interest and was going to school at that point in time. And I started to do some research in health care. What is this healthcare thing? And then thanks to Hoag Memorial in Newport Beach, they had a project called Project Wipeout. And they allowed the, the first responders to come in and see what happened after they left the beaches. And I actually found one of the victims. We call them victims. At that point, I pulled out of the water. It was a neck back injury. the person had survived and they were in the unit i was like wow i really made an impact wow so that's that's how it started for me and i've continued my career i have my undergraduate degree in uh, business finance my graduate degree in healthcare administration and my doctorate degree in interdisciplinary leadership where i focused on change management and what's called value creation that's creating quality improved outcomes, lowering cost and things like that, the meaningful part of change and what you can get out of it. So when
0: did the interest in that clinical role that you were playing merge into the business side of healthcare?
1: Probably when I realized that I could do both. Mm. And was I was looking into what's when I was able to understand from just doing reports, I'd you know, taking the opportunity in some of these projects in college to write about healthcare organizations and do research on healthcare organizations. And I really saw the blend between the business aspect of healthcare and the clinical aspect. And so part of the the, the best part of my day was always being able to round with with our staff, understanding what they do, finding out what barriers existed, and then helping working with them to eliminate those barriers and That's as close as I could get to clinical care. But, you know, to be honest with you, I've still maintained my emergency medical technician uh, license. Oh During COVID, while it was appropriate, I was able to provide vaccines. And I, in 2015, led a team to Nepal, where we did a humanitarian exercise after the earthquake and was able to, you know, we saw thousands of patients in the back in the hills and things like that in those inaccessible regions. So I've fortunately been given the opportunity to blend that clinical experience with the business experience to create some unique opportunities.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful that you've been able to do that. So as I noted, you've been in the healthcare system a long time, worked in leadership positions, various places. What path led you to UCR Health particularly?
1: Well I think that there there are key three key things that really made the opportunity as CEO of UC Riverside Health appealing. One is the growing market, and it's astounding when you look at the market growth. By 2048, they're projecting a 20% increase in the population in the inland Southern California market. So that's Riverside, San Bernardino, and that's outpacing the growth rate in California. So with growth creates opportunities, but it also needs kind of creative solutions. And that's one thing. The second one is the challenge, and we have probably got one of the lowest ratio of primary care physicians per 100 population in the state of California. The average is about 60. We're at about 41. So that's a significant issue that needs to be addressed. And we have to do something about recruiting, retaining and building a a larger physician workforce. And the last part would be the just the compelling need. When you look at the inland Southern California marketplace, there are gaps in health equity. There are gaps in access, timely access. There are gaps overall that, you know, when when you put yourself in the role of a patient, it's a very fragmented network. And so I think tremendous opportunities exist to create a, a more integrated network that's focused on quality and access to be able to address all of these challenges.
0: Why is the primary care shortage worse in your area, do you think?
1: I think there are a couple of different reasons that are driving that. One is is that it's very expensive to become a physician. And the debt load associated with what it takes to get through school is significant two i don't know that we do the best job in identifying talent early on and eliminating barriers for those individuals i think what what we've been able to do through the school of medicine is to reach back meaning going to k through 12 and creating different forums and opportunities for those budding and blossoming students who might not even think that it's capable of that they're capable of being a physician to say i can and i will and there's pathways for me to do it and i think to be also honest with you some of the mechanisms where we we always tend to identify with people that have similar lifestyles histories experiences etc and a lot of these individuals are looking for people to have mentors that they were there in your position once too. They were a son or daughter of a first generation immigrant to the United States that, you know, became a physician. And so creating these possibilities for people when they didn't think that it was possible. So
0: Yeah, I reminded of that phrase, if you see it, you can be it. Yes. Yes. A kind of role modeling aspect.
1: Yeah, that has a lot to do with it, is that if I see somebody who's been there, I'm going to latch on to them and say, how did you do it? I want to do it as well. And if you can identify them early on, maybe they don't set out to be a physician, but maybe they'll be a great nurse, or be maybe they'll be a, a radiation technologist, or what. but you can change the game if you can move backwards to create opportunities for individuals that may not see a pathway towards success.
0: It makes total sense. So you mentioned the, the School of Medicine there. It'd be great for our audience to get kind of an overview of it, what you think the strengths are and also understand this relationship between the organization you run and the school of medicine.
1: Yeah, I think to answer the second question first, the the clinical so UCR Health is the clinical enterprise of the school of medicine. So to make it just simple, it's the clinics, it's those, it's those facilities or locations where the physicians come into practice. And so they might be faculty and they might be medical students that are doing the rotation. So the clinical enterprise is where the clinical experience is had and where they learn, have direct patient care. I would consider the School of Medicine a multiplier. And first and foremost, when you look at what the School of Medicine can and will and is doing, it's identifying ways in which we can create the future of medicine. For those people, as I mentioned before, that might not think that there's a pathway, we're a community-based medical school, which means that we don't have a hospital. We're also very focused. And so our placements for medical school rotations are through our community hospitals. What we do really, really, really well is identify, as I mentioned before, the pathways for individuals to, to work their way through the system. We have scholarships available for individuals, as I mentioned. It's it's expensive to become an MD, so there are scholarships that exist, and we try to steer individuals towards those scholarships. So that if you graduate, when you graduate, if you come back to the inland Southern California marketplace, your debt is wiped out over, over the course of five years. So it essentially avoids the need when when we mentioned the the concerns that we have or challenges with retaining. They have to physicians seek out the income they need to pay back their debt. Well, if you wipe the debt away, they're going to make different decisions. So in other words, primary care, which doesn't
0: pay as much, suddenly becomes more realistic instead of having to go into a specialty.
1: Yes, exactly. Those higher paying specialties just to pay off your debt. So that's one thing. We're creating the futures for people who didn't know they had a future there. And then I think we, we also differentiate ourselves by being a holistic medical school. So looking at recruiting people from, you know, underserved areas, first generation physicians or clinicians that we can put in place. We're really thinking about what's make what can make or what will make that physician successful in the future both for themselves as well as for patients. So, we're very focused on listening, engaging the patient in the dialogue rather than we've all been to an office visit where the physician, we feel like the physician's just talking at us. And we have all these things that we own our bodies, right? And But the physician's not listening. We've got programs and educational content that allows the physician to understand how to get that message out, how to engage that patient in their care rather than just being done to them. So we found that studies have proven that when, when patients are engaged in their care, it's not done to them as much, Wow, you have changes around population health benefit and changes in outcomes and everything else. So we're really taking a holistic view to address all of those challenges and barriers that exist.
0: So you had you know mentioned the shortages, barriers to access, a fragmented system and, and and the need, you know, to expand to meet an expanding population. So can you talk a little bit about from a business standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, how you're going to execute. On handling all of that and what your plans are for trying to expand services?
1: Yeah, I I think that, you know, one of the things that we have to do better is retain the physicians that we have in the marketplace and produce more physicians. But I think it's, it's, it goes without being said, but I'll say it being a physician is really hard work. And when you look at, The access issue that I'd mentioned before about having, you know, 40 primary care physicians per 100,000, it's the less than the average, you know, by 20. And that puts tremendous burden on the physicians to carry more weight, to do more. There's always more. And the guilt that they have in a lot of cases of, I got to work harder. There's so many people who depend on me. There's so many patients that need care that I could work 24 hours a day. And so physician burnout is, is a really big thing that we're focused on. And there's really no simple answer to that. But what we're trying to do is to lighten the load of those physicians by you know, reducing the burden that they individually carry. We're expanding the scope of work around the medical assistance that we have. We're improving the communication mechanisms around feedback between physician and patient if there's something as simple as you know a request that they have for a referral or you know an email message or you know where does this stand rather than going to the physician and overburdening them, it's going to the medical assistant, sort of creating these care teams. So, and we're also optimizing what we use for our electronic medical record. So a lot of, you would probably say, if you were to take a survey, you'd probably find out that one of the biggest burdens for physicians is that gosh darn electronic medical record, which has been game changing for the industry because it allows better documentation, but who does the documentation? The physician. So what we're trying to do is to build scripts, preset order structures that essentially if a patient comes in and meets this condition, there's a pre-scripted order set that bang, it could be done customized for that physician, by that physician and for that physician so that they can copy and paste. And those are, it doesn't affect patient care, but what it does is if you have swelling after surgery, you don't need to type it out every single time; it's right. Like copy over, right? So, right. We're trying to optimize those type of things, and then I had also mentioned that you know the retention is also tied to the financial piece, and we're trying to work on around ways that we can make education more affordable, especially if you come back in this marketplace. And that's one of our goals: is to recruit, retain physicians that are sensitive to the local market, and will obviously come back to the market and stay.
0: While you're talking about administrative burden, just a quick side question about AI. Are there any tools that you folks are seeing out there that could be plugged in to your workflow, your clinician's workflow to help with some of this?
1: Yes. We we're exploring those right now. I think I think in healthcare in general, we're we're a little bit hesitant to go all the way in with AI. Artificial artificial intelligence poses great opportunity, but it has to be managed. One of the things we're looking at is like when a physician begins an office visit. That direct communication that when you enter as a physician, you enter into the exam room, you want to have a direct, hello, Mrs. Jones, Mr. Jones, etc. The worst thing that a physician brings forward is, hi, Mrs. Jones, and they start typing on the computer, right? And it's like they disconnect and they start looking at the computer and they go, yeah, Mrs. Jones, yeah, uh uh-huh. And they're so focused on typing. So one of the things that we're looking at is when a physician comes in the room, there's there's technology available right now to improve the documentation process. So physician comes in, they might do a badge swipe, our electronic medical record identifies who the physician is, that they're seeing Mrs. Jones, that Mrs. Jones has come in for these, these type of concerns. And then it starts to help capture information for the physician during the office visit that allows them to, rather than typing all that out again, Allows them to go back to the record and say, "Okay, no, I said this, or I said that, or this is a good representation of it," and so it becomes more iterative with the use around AI.
0: So, is this like an audio transcription tool? Yes. Okay. Yes.
1: Yeah, it is. There's also a matching element so that when a patient comes in with certain conditions, the AI system will go, you know, these are the four things that you might want to think about, right? Like how you, how you would talk about the education around your osmosis with the education of some of the medical school students and the training, it's also bringing those to my top of mind issue. Oh, okay, this patient is complaining of these four things that the MA captured. Ask them about their history around this. So there becomes more of an interactive so they're not starting over every single time and it becomes a team sport rather than one individual physician trying to do everything themselves. So there's a lot of leveraging that's going on right now. We're moving, I wouldn't say slowly, but cautiously to make sure that we're documenting the right and the right information and capturing it and using it appropriately and that patients are aware that we're using AI as well and how we're using it.
0: Yeah. Well, and, you know, clinical practices are getting hit up all the time with new products and services and systems and all that stuff. So, you know, you also don't want to overwhelm them and it takes time for it to get ironed out and, and worked into their workflow. Yes, it does. So you mentioned teamwork a couple of times, and I'm wondering how that impacts the education side of this because folks are stepping into these roles, medical assistant you mentioned, now that you know five years ago that meant a certain thing. Now the scope of practice for a medical assistant or some of these other providers is changing. So how, how does that impact how you guys are preparing them?
1: Well, it's, it's actually very exciting because we're seeing – a push for some of the medical assistants to do more for the physicians. For example, we're trying to support the MA, I call them MAs, medical assistants, functioning at their top ability, at the maximum capability that they have based on licensure and certification. In a lot of cases, they come in with lower expectations around how they've done it in the past. We need them to be a part of the care team. That has not always been the case. So this model around the physician being the heroic, the hero, and the single point of reference, physicians are starting to realize it is a team sport. And so we're using our medical assistants at the top of their license and certification to be involved with patients directly to handle some of those inbox management, to filter and screen those things. We're also looking at nurse practitioners and how that fits within our model. And it might sound blasé to say, well, we're looking at it, but we want to make sure that there's a value add because the patient wants to have a physician, but we also need that supplemental model around a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant, if it's appropriate, on how do they fit with the practice, especially around education. So we're evolving and then developing the tools as well. Where it's what's also cool is we've we've now got these work groups that we've set up with our medical assistants, where I mentioned before about change and how change is I view there's two different ways. There's change you're a part of, and there's changes done to you. A lot of times in healthcare, we do change two people. What we're opting to do instead is we've engaged the medical assistants to completely redesign what we'll call our patient roaming process we will have the page the the MAS take the patient in. we'll get all the history of the individual we'll go we'll put everything we'll do all the health screening which we want to do for our quality of care measures and that's all part of what we call standard work for the medical assistants so i wouldn't call it templated but it's as close to being standard work and templated as you can get with some variation. But that allows, what does that allow? That allows the MA to come in, own that rooming process. It then allows, what we're doing is coupling the physician with that to say, does that rooming process get me what I need to be able to start doing the diagnosis? Then the physicians are going, well, how about if you ask this question, or now we're teaming, Mm -hmm. now I understand Mm -hmm. what you're doing, now you understand what I'm doing and we want the best outcome. So we get this, this cross-pollinization between the two when each side is involved in the overarching care, that's where you get the pickup. That's where you get the teaming model. And then you load into that everything that's a around around communication. And we're building all of this around the patient, which again, rather than the care being done to the patient, have the patient be a part of that whole experience.
0: Well, There certainly is no end to the change in healthcare. And everybody's sort of in that mindset, I think, where you come in every day and you got to adjust to something else. But also, as you're suggesting, creates new opportunities for folks and for certain positions. So that's that's good too. So as you know, we're a teaching company. And one of the questions we love asking our guests is, is there a knowledge gap, a myth, something along those lines that, that you, you know, Care about particularly that you would say to osmosis, you guys, it would be great if you could make a video about
1: that or a course to fill that gap. What would that be? I think the biggest part that we're seeing in our industry gets back to what I mentioned before, which is care being directed. And I don't think that we as an industry do a good enough job of listening. And when I hear about concerns from patients and their families, it's usually around you didn't listen to me it's usually around i've been going through this and you didn't respect me enough to ask the questions and to engage me you told me what you thought and you did to me this and i had i own my body and i know my body so i think it comes down to that active engaged listening humble inquiry which comes from lean management is really understanding what's going on in that, with that patient in, in, in that patient's world, because most of the time the, the problems that we face are much broader than just the patient themselves. It could be the environment they live in. It could be the food that they're eating that somebody prepares for, and it could be transportation. So it's like, unless you truly understand the patient and what they're living by asking humble questions and, being a, and allowing them to be a partner in the care, I I think you'll never get to the solution. So answer to your question, I think, you know, the modules around asking really good questions, listening to the results, and then formulating questions from what you hear to create a plan, like those you know, when you get in a negotiation, is it like, so? This is what I hear. You match up, it's almost like a different level of negotiation with the patient to say, This is what I'm hearing from you. This is the clinical nature of what's going on. How can we work to change some of these things little by little to get you to improved cardiovascular care or reduce your issues around diabetes or what? because that's where you're going to get the game-changing events. And it's not going to come by people telling you what to do. It's by creating this participation between patient and clinician.
0: Very well put. So we're almost out of time, but we do want to give you an opportunity to answer one of our other favorite questions, which is with our younger audience in mind, what is your advice to folks entering healthcare careers about coming in at a time when there's just so much challenge and adversity and opportunity i
1: think one of the things that i that i always tell people who come and seek advice is do a couple things and do them well one is take on responsibility where others won't be willing to take a risk and know that if you bring in others you won't fail and Find organizations that create a culture or have a culture that want you to fail. Obviously, in healthcare, we're very risk averse. They got to be
0: careful where the failure happens. (laughs) I need
1: to to caveat that with you can't kill anybody by doing what you do. Right. So it's like, but when you want to do something around a new product or open or open a new line of business or step forward. And and then build your, your network of mentors. And I think that's the other thing. It's seek out mentors along your career or throughout your career who can help you, advise you, and give you guidance along the way. And then I think, you know, you the, the third thing that i I'd say about recommendations is always think that the old Wayne Gretzky topic about where is healthcare going? Where is the puck going to be? How can I position myself with the right skills so that, you know, as you see things evolving, that you're there? I mean, I I see this the AI, use of AI as something that maybe in my career horizon, maybe I won't see the the tremendous multiplier effect, but I do see it coming. And I'm doing everything I can to learn about it. And also I'm seeking out others who are more knowledgeable about that. Like, You know, going outside our industry, going outside of healthcare to understand how others are using it. It's like, okay, maybe I can take a little bit of that back. So always think broader than what you're currently experiencing, because then you'll see where the thought leadership is and how to use it more effectively.
0: That's great. You know, I think Wayne Gretzky is probably quoted as much by business leaders as by hockey players, because (laughs) that is (laughs) such a great encapsulation of, you know, how to approach whatever
1: business you're in. Yeah. My other favorite quote quote is Colin Powell's quote, something to the effect of it'll be more clear in the morning. It might be, it might be. So, you know, I guess the other thing that I'd offer for people just as a, as a ad or a supplement is don't beat yourself up because you don't have an answer right now. Let it stew. It'll come to you. It'll be more, it'll be clear in the morning when you've thought about it. And so don't put unnecessary pressure on yourself to be a hundred percent, be a perfectionist, knowing good enough is good enough and allow yourself to think through these complex problems because there's there's a reason why they're problems, right? It's like, and they're why they're complex is nobody can solve them. Yeah, nobody else has figured it out yet. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's why they still exist. So don't beat yourself up, bring a team in and think through those things. And that's where, again, bringing your mentors and everything else and who you team with to, to solve these complex problems. That's a great perspective, and I'm sure
0: appreciated by our audience. And we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today, uh, Dr. Collins. It's been a pleasure. It's been my
1: pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out today's show, and remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.